0: The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. Tonight, folks, is November 11th, Remembrance Day, Veterans Day in the States. I'd like to dedicate this show to a fallen soldier, a friend of mine who was over in Afghanistan. His name is Andrew Miller. He was a medic. He was rushing to the aid of a child, and an IED went off underneath his ambulance and killed him instantly. So for Wendy and Andrew from Sudbury, who I met years ago, God bless you both, and we continue. Jim Diogeno is our guest tonight, folks. We're going to be looking at JFK. We're going to be looking at the Warren Commission. He's got books out called Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba, and The Garrison Case, Reclaiming Parkland, which we're going to be getting into. Uh, He's got a great book out called The Assassinations with co-author Lisa Pease. Lisa Pease, folks will know that has been on the show. He uh, also released something called Probe, which is an instrumental magazine that was released in the 90s to bring about change and further examination of the uh, JFK assassination along with the other two assassinations, Martin Luther King as well as Bobby Kennedy. Citizens for Truth? is his website, folks, but we'll be putting all this information, as always, on the Night Fright web show, so you won't have to rewrite it down or remember it. Just go to the www.nightfrightshow.com website. All the links for all his books will be there. You can order them from the comfort of your own home, and uh, also you'll be able to go right to his website, and Jim updates that on a regular basis. He is also one of the main consultants for Oliver Stone's JFK DVD. Jim, welcome back to the show. It's been far too long, my friends. Good to see you. All
1: right. Uh, thanks, Brent. I'd also like to add that Probe is available today, all seven volumes, on CD. Okay, you can get that at our website, CTKA. And like you said, it was it tried to promote uh, awareness of the new developments in the JFK case through the 90s, actually up to the year 2000. And the reason we did this is because almost nobody was running the new documents declassified by the Assassinations Record Review Board. And if your listeners don't know what that is, that's the Assassinations Record Review Board was set up by Bill Clinton um, to make visible and unredacted the uh, overwhelming mass of paper. That the government had accumulated over the years, all right. To this day, nobody knows how much it was. The best estimates are that there was at least two million pages uh, being classified in some way by the government. And even today, with the expiration of the ARB, if you can believe it, there's thousands of pages of documents that still haven't been declassified, all right. And they're not scheduled to be declassified for three more years. 2017. Now, you mentioned Oliver Stone. <laughs> Oliver had me do the DVD commentary uh, for the film JFK, which, by the way, is still on there, right? even the newest version.
0: Yeah, even the Blu-ray.
1: Yeah. Okay. And the, um, when he first uh, got in contact with me, he said, words of the effect, you know, Jim, I know you're like probably one of the only people in the world, maybe the only person in the world who's actually read this stuff. <laughs> okay so i'd like you to do a a audio visual for uh, the dvd release of jfk and i was glad to do it of course you know and so um they actually it was going to be even longer than it is They they cut two segments out of it all right um which i thought were both very good all right but uh, they cut about i'd say about 15 minutes out of it all right and um but other than that, it's pretty much what I, um, you know, what I stood in front of a screen with and put into a microphone. So it's very much worth, even that thing is very much worth seeing today. That yeah, DVD and, documentary, yeah.
0: And also Len's got that piece on it too about Prouty. I should right. also mention that. Yeah, Len, Len O'Sanic Len folks.
1: Yeah. Prouty, yes.
0: Yeah, blackopradio.com, I believe, if you want to uh, check in, check out Len's show, Len Osanic's show. And um, Okay, let's continue with the Warren Commission. I had opened up with the magic bullet. Now, several reasons why I did that, because that is the foundation of their report, that it could only have been one lone nut shooter by the name of Lee Harvey Oswald shooting from behind Kennedy. Can we explain, first of all, what their first initial report was before James Tate came forward and what they were proposing? Uh, all the where all the shots originated from, and why
1: well, the Warren Commission was very, very reliant on the FBI all right, and in fact, it even says this in the uh, preface to the Warren Commission that the overwhelming majority like eighty five to ninety percent of their investigatory materials came from the Federal Bureau of Investigation mm-hmm. now. A very huge irony is this: even though that is the case, the Warren Commission didn't print the FBI report on the Kennedy assassination, even though it had 26 volumes to do it with. So, in other words, really think about this for a while. You got 19,000 pages at your disposal. All right, there's everything under the sun is in those 26 volumes. But yet, the FBI report, upon which the Warren Commission is based is not in the volumes. One of the reasons why, of course, is because the FBI didn't buy the single bullet theory. J. Edgar Hoover never bought the single bullet theory, not during the investigation, not after the investigation, not till the day he died. All right? His idea was that all three shots hit. All right? Okay? Now, to understand what I mean by that, that all three shots hit... The Warren Commission says one missed, all right, and they were alerted to this fact in April of 1964 by the local DA, the Justice Department DA down there in Dallas-Fort Worth, that one of the shots had exploded on the curb in front of bystander James Tague. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that is so significant is this. If you've ever been to Dealey Plaza, James Tagg was on a different street, okay, than what Kennedy was driving down. Okay, Very Kennedy true. is driving down Elm Street. Tagg is over on Commerce Street. See, there's a trestle underneath the bridge, and Tagg was on the other side of the trestle. All right. So, in other words, to uh, to think that Oswald fired the shot that missed Teg and then exploded at the curb, the debris exploding up into uh, his face and making some blood wounds on his face, you know, you have to believe that Oswald had two direct hits that is in the head and shoulder area of the main target, Kennedy. All right. But what he missed, he not only missed Kennedy, he not only missed the whole car. He missed the entire street that the car was going down, all right? And he must have missed it going about 15 feet over 10 head. all right? And about, I'd say, 100 feet in distance, okay? Or maybe a little bit less than that. Now, I ask you, in the world of facts and logic and professional marksmen, all right, this kind of stuff doesn't happen, all right? If you're good enough to get two out of three hits set a moving target away from you on a slope, you're not going to miss one of the shots all right? Anybody, anywhere near that kind of a distance. So it was this that prompted the Warren Commission to dump the FBI report all right, and go with this new idea that somehow one shot missed. But the problem with that, of course is that now you have to explain, you know, in and out of Kennedy, in and out of Conley, in and out of Conley's wrist, and in the Conley's thigh, and if the other bullet is the one that kills Kennedy by floating his head, you're down to one bullet. All right? And so this is what the Warren Commission, Arlen Specter, decided to go with, rather than say there was a second assassin. There's a very famous quote by Norman Redlich, who's the guy who did most of the writing of the, war, the final draft of the Warren Commission. All right. If we invalidate the single bullet theory, that's tantamount to saying that there's a second assassin. And that is one thing the Warren Commission was not going to do. Come hell or high water. All right. Now, I should also add there was another reason that... Uh, the Warren Commission decided to go with this and this was because of a rapid timing problem that they had okay that that's the elapsed time that the Warren Commission allots to getting the three shots off is somewhere around six six and a half you know at the utmost uh, seven seconds Okay, that's why Josiah Thompson's famous book, all right, is called Six Seconds in Dallas. All right, so when I mean, he did a microanalysis of what the Warren Commission said was happening, all right, if you go ahead and um, look at the Zapruder film, all right, and you go ahead and time out the reactions, all right, it's very hard to reconcile that the first shot. And the second shot were fired by Oswald because the time elapsed. If you look at the Zapruder film, all right, if you have the first shot, the Warren Commission says occurred somewhere after 2:10, and Thompson said it looks like Conley's hit at about 2:36. That is an elapsed time of 26 frames on the Zapruder film, which means like a second and a half. Now, the FBI tested the rifle, and they said it takes at least two seconds to recycle this thing. And by the way, that was just to recycle the rifle. That wasn't to line up the sights and aim it. All right. So they did everything they could to go ahead and push, okay, the second shot further down. All right. Now, the third shot isn't really a serious problem because that's at Z-frame 313, all right? So that gives you about, you know, 50 or 60 frames, all right, which is more than enough time if you go by the FBI report and what it took. But they had this very serious problem, all right? And so they tried to explain this thing, okay, by saying that Conley was unaware <laughs> that he was actually being hit, The problem with this, of course, is that when they interviewed Conley, he was all too aware that he was being hit. But he said he was hit by the second shot. See, this was the problem. He said he was hit by the second shot. They said the second shot missed. Okay? Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but years later, Conley, I think, was an interview in 1982. All right? um, That... Uh, he did with a, a Washington reporter. Uh they asked him, Well, what do you think of the Warren Report? And he said words to the effect, I don't believe one word of it. Mm. <laughs> what do you mean you don't believe one word of it? He goes, I just what I said. I think it's a bunch of crap. All right? And they said, Well, why don't you say something then? He goes, Look, I didn't want to go ahead and go up against the Warren Commission and everything else, and then open this thing up. And so I just decided to remain quiet about it. But if you'd have asked me privately back there in 1964 when it was published, I would have told you the same thing off the record. All right? So here you have a guy who's riding in the car, okay? He doesn't even believe, you know, what, you know, what the Warren Commission is saying. All right? So this, it became, though, as many people have said, Cyril Weck, most memorably, Mm -hmm. the sine qua non of the Warren Commission, which means in Latin without this everything else collapses. Alright, which is utterly true. You don't have the single bullet theory. The whole 808 pages of the Warren Commission, you might as well just throw it in the fire. Alright? So, this is why it was so important for them to put this thing together Even after the tag hit was exposed, and I should go ahead and go into this a little bit more deeply, Hoover tried to make the tag hit disappear. That's right. Okay. He tried to make it disappear. Uh, Tag had seen the breakage in the curb himself, and he had actually taken a couple, told other people about it. Then he was ready to be going on a vacation in April, all right? And he took a little walk out there with his camera, all right, to go ahead and take some pictures of it. And guess what? It wasn't there anymore. (laughs) Okay, somebody had gone ahead and, like, jellied it up, all right? And he said you could see where they had done it, or as plain as day, you know? And so this created a ruckus, a local ruckus down in Dallas. And so the FBI then had to say something, and they said, well, that was because of street cleaning. (laughs) All right, well, here's my question about street cleaning. If you've ever seen a big street cleaning truck, which I have, a street cleaning truck does not add volume to the curb. It takes away (laughs) volume to the curb, all right? So how could a street cleaner actually add something to the curb that wasn't there in the first place. This is how ridiculous, okay, this is how cockamamie, how absurd, all right, this story gets when you, see, with the Warren Commission, all you have to do is press on any certain area of the report, all right? You keep on pressing, you keep on pressing, and you come up with something that is a fairy tale. That is an absurd thing to say. And unfortunately, as Mark Lane said, you know, quoting, I think it was Zola, you know, if we accept too many absurdities, all right, we end up with tragedy, which is what happened with the Warren Report. We accepted a series of absurdities, and we ended up with a horrible national tragedy. So this is the single – well, I'd like to add this. The single bullet theory was absurd. Every, you know, Spectre dreamed it up. We know today that it didn't happen. I don't even really like to talk about, you know, the wounds and the trajectory and stuff like that. Because today we know that CE-399 was substituted. All right? We know it was a plant. Okay? We, we have this, one of the really good things that the ARB did, and then the work of John Hunt a very good researcher, you know, has, has proven this. And it's in my book, Reclaiming Parkland. You know, John Hunt went down to the National Archives. Now, let me set this in historical background, because I think John did this like in 2001 or 2002 or 2003, the early part of the new millennium. Here's my question. You had the Warren Commission. You had the Church Committee. You had the House Select Committee on Assassinations. You had the ARB. Now, oh, I missed one. The Rockefeller Commission. Mm. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. Why did it take John Hunt to do what those people could not do? John Hunt went to the National Archives. He asked for CE399. All right. He asked for whatever photo mock-ups they had and blow-ups of the photographs of CE 399. He asked for Robert Frazier's paperwork. Robert Frazier was a guy who um, received CE 399 into evidence, okay, the night of the assassination. And he wanted to know, you know, who's correct here? Are the critics correct? Or is the Warren Commission correct? So he looked for pieces of evidence, all right, that would certify it one way or the other. He found two startling things. If you take a look in the Warren Commission volumes, you will see something very odd. You had about, I believe, three law enforcement officers who handled the bullet in transit from Parkland Hospital to its arrival at FBI headquarters that night.
0: Can I just interrupt you? Folks were talking about...
1: Yes. What is called
0: Commission Exhibit three nine nine. That is indeed the magic bullet. It was found in Parkland Hospital, allegedly, uh, in pristine condition. By the way, uh, no blood on it, no tissue on it, on a gurney just lying there. And everybody assumed that this was the bullet. We calling the magic bullet. And I'll let Jim continue for there. I just wanted to orientate folks what we're talking. All
1: right. about. you'll you'll see that. And looking at the affidavits and everything, that very strangely, um, only one person was supposed to put their initials in the bullet. So this is very odd because one of the very first things law officers um, are trained to do is when you're handling important pieces of evidence, all right, and you're passing the evidence along an evidentiary chain up to command, You they even give you what's called a marking blade, all right? in which you carve your um, initials into the, uh, the item, whatever it may be. So that when it comes to court, see, the last thing you want is the defense attorney to say that such and such exhibit is inadmissible because there's no chain of evidence with it, all right? You know, so there you have the chain of evidence. I initialed it here, he initialed it here, and he initialed it there. All right. If you read the Warren Commission, and if you... Even books on the Warren Commission, like Josiah Thompson's book, Six Seconds in Dallas, he even fell for this. He writes that Elmer Lee Todd initialed the bullet. Okay, CE-399. So this, like much in the literature on the Kennedy assassination, became part of the ledger domain. All right. In other words... This became recited by other researchers, other people, other books, etc. Elmer Lee Todd, Elmer Lee Todd, Elmer Lee Todd. Now, this is, why is that important? Because Elmer Lee Todd was supposed to have gotten the bullet at the White House at approximately 9.30 that night from James Rowley of the Secret Service, who got it from Richard Johnson, who was another Secret Service agent. All right? So... In I think it's one of the um, CE 2043 or something like that, in the Warren Commission volumes, this is what it says, that Todd initialed the bullet. So John Hunt goes down to the National Archives in a new millennium. And guess what? This will be no surprise to you. Elmer Lee Todd's initials are not on the bullet. Okay? This was a lie that Hoover passed on to the commission, that the commission swallowed, and that all these other authors like Thompson and everybody else, swallowed without going down to the National Archives and checking the bullet. The Warren Commission, the Church Committee, the ARB, the House Select Committee, none of them went ahead and looked at this exhibit and s- to see that Hoover had lied. Alright? Now, there was one other thing that John Hunt discovered. If you take a look at the receipt that Rowley passed on to Elmer Lee Todd. Okay. It's on a little piece of paper, and actually Thompson, I think, has this in his book. And it says, words of the effect, that um, I, James Rowley, passed on this bullet exhibit to Elmer Lee Todd at, I, th- I think the time was like 9.40. All right? All right, Eastern Standard Time. All right? And, of course, remember, this is CE-399, the so-called stretcher bullet. Well, Hunt discovered in Frazier's memoranda, all right, written that night, that Frazier had already received the stretcher bullet because he wrote it down in his notes at 730. Now, here's my question. How could Frazier get the bullet about two hours before Todd ever got it from Raleigh. Okay.
0: And now you know why, folks. We call this thing over and over and over again, the magic bullet.
1: No, it's even more magical than anybody ever thought of, right? <laughs> it
0: disappears right? and comes back. And
1: <laughs> so now, now, well, I, I have one more thing to tell you. All right. Another piece of evidence that uh, the Warren Commission used. and and Hoover used and other people who supported the Warren Commission have used is that FBI agent Bardwell Odom had shown the bullet to O.P. Wright okay now O.P. Wright is the chief of security at Parkland Hospital he was supposedly one of the first two people to actually handle a bullet, And in fact, he's a guy who gave it to the Secret Service. All right? Now, this was another piece of evidence that Hoover used. Okay? Hoover lied on this also. Because Gary Aguilar, Dr. Gary Aguilar from San Francisco, and Ting Thompson, who lives up in the Bay Area, went down to see Bardwell Odom, okay? And they asked him, it says, who are you saying here that you showed this bullet for identification purposes to O.P. Wright, all right? We can't find any 302, which is a field investigation report, that says that you did this. And Bardwell Odom said words of the effect that I, I never showed that bullet to O.P. Wright, all right? I mean, I knew O.P. Wright, we were friends. Uh, if I would showed him that bullet, I would have definitely remembered it, and I would have definitely written up a 302. So the FBI, in just a short discussion that I've given you, all right, lied three times mm-hmm. about what many people, including myself, believe is the single most exhibit, the single most important exhibit in the entire Warren Commission report. They lied about bargwa Odom. they lied about Elmer Lee Todd. they lied about what time the um, the bullet got there all right so we're left by it, the most benign interpretation that I can think of 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 these events uh, and this is really bending over a little bit too backwards is that there were four bullets okay there were four bullets. The other interpretation, of course, is they switched to bullets, which I think is even worse. If they switched to bullets, that's even worse. All right? You know? So, but either way, it's a conspiracy. Either way, it's a conspiracy. If there's four bullets, like we said earlier, that means there's a second assassin. If they switch the evidence, that's even worse because that means, in my opinion, that a different weapon was used, or else they wouldn't have had to switch to bullets. Okay, and I think many of us who have researched this case actually believe that that's the case—that that it was probably a Mauser uh, that was actually used in the actual assassination.
0: Can you expand on that?
1: Yes, because um, the first reports um, on the, uh, the first day, all the way up until that evening, I think there's three reports, all right, that were submitted to the Sheriff's Department and the Dallas police, was that the first weapon found was a German Mauser. Okay, Now, this, of course, was deadly uh, to the Warren Commission because the weapon that was attributed to Oswald was a Mannlicher Carcano. So this had to be concealed and discredited and covered up, etc. But as more than one person has said, including Mark Lane, how could police say it was a German Mauser, okay, because on the actual Manichircano rifle, it says made in Italy, 6.5, all right? Didn't they even look at the stamp on the rifle, all right? They didn't even do that, all right? Well, I mean, I think most people would say, yeah, they did, all right, but it didn't say made in Italy, 6.5, okay? <laughs> okay, it was a, it was a German Mauser. That's why they did what they did. All right. Okay. And then somehow, oh, and I should say that many years later, I think over 30 years later, um, the ARB discovered that there was a Mauser shell found in Dealey Plaza. All right. So, in my opinion, that's why I say I believe that the actual weapon used was a German Mauser, which is a much better rifle, okay, than the 6.5 uh, Mannlicher Gujana rifle.
0: I'm your host, Brent Holland. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of your choice going. We've got a fantastic show for you tonight. Jim Eugenio is our guest tonight. Now, if there's anybody in the whole world that knows more than anybody else, as Oliver Stone says... Uh, About the JFK assassination, it is indeed Jim Eugenio. He's joining us live tonight all the way from Los Angeles, where it is balmy there. It is the same temperature as it is here in Kingston, Canada. And uh, for that, we are ever grateful because we know that the white stuff is just around the corner. Jim, let's go back into the Warren Commission. Now, the obvious question is, we know it's a cover-up at this point. In 2014, that's been established. We've just gone through how the magic bullet is the foundation of this report and it just falls apart completely. Why the cover-up? Why was it necessary for them to fabricate this cover-up?
1: Well we actually have this now um, from the declassified files of the ARB. Um, Very soon within the intelligence community there was reports that Oswald had been in Mexico City and that Oswald had visited both the um, Cuban embassy and the Russian embassy right. now if you have what is a former communist defector who went to Russia stayed there for like two and a half years and then went ahead and returned to the United States And had worked for the Fair Play for Cuba committee in the summer of 1963 and got into a physical altercation on the streets of New Orleans with an anti-communist Cuban exile. And then, when he left New Orleans, went down to Mexico City and actually met with a guy named Valery Kostikoff, all right, who was part of the diplomatic staff but was secretly a kgb agent and then seven weeks later this guy is on the parade route and he happens to be accused of killing kennedy well most people would say that could lead to some very strong tensions all right, between the United States and the communists because the implication would be that a communist killed Kennedy for the Russians. <laughs> All right, and in fact, this is exactly what Johnson told Warren when Earl Warren came into his office after refusing to take the job previously. Um, Johnson then told him that he had to take the job he needed his imprimatur on the report or else there's a possibility that there would be nuclear warfare and there'd be 40 million dead
0: let me ask you this Jim because I've never asked you this before do you think Johnson was being disingenuous do you think he actually believed that
1: well see that's a very interesting question it's an important question too you know did Johnson really believed this stuff, okay? Or was he doing it just to go ahead and pressure Warren to take the job because he knew that with Warren's name on the report, that would stifle the dissent from the liberal part of the press because Warren had done all these wonderful things, you know, about um, the, uh, the criminal justice system and going all the way back the Brown versus Board decision, he was a favorite of the of the liberal press, New York Times, etc. You know, if you can call that liberal even back then. But anyway, um, that this is what a lot of people because before that meeting with Warren, there's another very interesting declassified um, conversation, and it turns out that Hoover had very early on, within 24 hours of the assassination, told Johnson they were having a problem with Oswald being in Mexico City. And the problem is that, number one, we have this tape, okay, which my FBI agents have listened to. And some of these guys had actually interviewed Oswald. When he was in detention. And they go. This isn't his voice. Okay, This isn't the guy we're talking to. This isn't his voice. And the other thing was. That. The picture that the CIA sent up. Was in no way. Even close to looking like Oswald. Alright this is the famous. Um, Mystery man photograph. Alright which. If you haven't seen it. Um, it looks like A Russian rugby player. This guy looks like about six feet, you know, about two twenty. All right, and very husky. All right. Whereas we know Oswald was like five nine, weighed about one forty-five, was skinny as a rail. All right. You know, nobody could possibly believe that that picture in any way represented Oswald. Now. Hoover actually voiced these doubts, and he actually, I think, if I remember correctly, said, we're checking out these rumors that there was a second Oswald down there in Mexico City. All right? So this at least would, if Johnson was thinking clearly, this would at least make him think, well, wait a minute, you know, if if Oswald's not in the tape and Oswald's not in the picture, Where was he? Okay. And who's on the tape? And how could the CIA screw up like that, Mm. you know? and But evidently, he never asked himself these questions or the other interpretation. He was at least cognizant that the CIA was doing something really not kosher down there. Now why do I say that? Because six weeks after the assassination. Hoover came to that conclusion, all right? And we have this in a memoranda that he wrote, his um, handwritten note on the side of a memoranda, which he's saying, you know something, I'm not sure about trusting the CIA anymore. You know, they gave us that phony story about French intelligence in the United States, and then they gave us that, I think you used words of the effect, that snow job about Oswald in Mexico City. So in other words, Hoover himself came to believe that the CIA was doing something funny, at, to put it mildly, all right, about Oswald being in Mexico City. So if you look at it that way, if you look at it that way, the question then becomes, did Johnson fall for this phony story? Or did he more or less just want to go along with it himself, okay, to go ahead and get the whole thing buried under a rock, which knowing he had intimidated the hell out of Warren, which he had because he even himself said Warren left the meeting crying, all right, you know, that Warren would now do, all right? So this is one of the most interesting questions we have today based upon the declassified transcripts of Johnson's phone conversations. All right.
0: Jim, how big a part, it was only a year before that, that the Cuban Missile Crisis took place. How big a part did that play in the cover-up and the fear that uh, was raging through Washington when the assassination took place?
1: Well, okay. To give you a little bit of background on this. The Joint Chiefs of Staff were very unhappy that Kennedy did not invade Cuba during the Bay of Pigs invasion, all right. They had submitted plans for an invasion at the beginning of 1962 to Kennedy, all right. Now, what better causes belli, what that means, that's a Latin term meaning just cause, all right. What better causes belli could you have to enact an invasion of Cuba? Than the Russians installing what is really a first strike capability on the island. Now, see, this is something not too many people know about, but the Russians had put in something like 95 intermediate and short range nuclear weapons, all right, which could reach just about every major city in the United States. They had, if I remember correctly, 24 nuclear bombers, okay, and then, again, I'm going from memory, but I think it's pretty accurate. They had it between seven and nine nuclear submarines, all right. So that is, to most people, you know, a first-strike capability, all right, because you could have gone after literally the top 100 population cities in America, you know. All right. So when this was discovered by YouTube photography, the pressure was on Kennedy to go ahead and either do an airstrike, all right, or actually invade the island. Kennedy held out the whole 13 days. And if you go ahead and you read the transcripts of those, there's a good book called The Kennedy Tapes on this. If you read it, what's so interesting about that book is that by the end, I'm talking like the 12th, 13th day. By this time, almost everybody, even McNamara, who had actually come up with the idea of the blockade, is now requesting that Kennedy go ahead and invade the island. All right? I mean, even Fulbright, even Senator Fulbright, who had told Kennedy that the Bay of Pigs idea was terrible, he was even urging Kennedy. Go. Johnson, of course, was urging Kennedy. Just about everybody except his brother was urging Kennedy to go ahead and invade the island. And this is why, of course, Kennedy used his brother as a back channel to the Russians to arrange this deal, All right, which was that we will take our Jupiter missiles out of Turkey and give you a no-pledge invasion on Cuba. If you remove everything from the island, which very luckily Khrushchev agreed to. All right. Now, what very many people say is that after the missile crisis, Kennedy began to work for what is called a rapprochement or detente with both Castro and the Russians, which is true. (laughs) All right. Which is true. There's, There's no doubt about this. All right. Uh, we have this um, in, in documents now. We have so many witnesses, et cetera. All right. And there's no doubt that this is what Kennedy was headed towards. All right. And this, of course, is mostly in um, that documentary, JFK, a President Betrayed by Corey Taylor, and also in the Jim Douglas book, JFK and the Unspeakable. I disagree with the general tenor of both that film. In the book. All right. Not that I disagree with the facts. I don't disagree with the facts. I disagree with the description that says a cold warrior turns, that's usually applied to the Douglas book. All right. I believe that John Kennedy's foreign policy was pretty much molded when he entered the White House in 1961. It's just that we've been looking at the wrong places to see what that foreign policy was. And I I really have a beef with the research community on this particular point, because in my opinion, to learn about JFK's foreign policy, you shouldn't go to JFK assassination books, because all they talk about is Vietnam and Cuba. Like, that's the only thing that Kennedy did for three years in the field of foreign, which is not even close to being the truth. All right. The one I want to talk about a little bit more tonight is Kennedy's Middle Eastern policy because I'd be willing to wager 98% of the people listening to this show didn't even know Kennedy had a Middle Eastern policy. All right, But he definitely did. And you can outline it very sketchily in three or four uh, statements. Okay. First of all, Kennedy wanted to... Not give atomic weapons to Israel, all right, under any circumstances. He thought that would just escalate the whole movement way out of control. Number two, Kennedy wanted to put the Palestinian issue on the back burner for now because he understood how inflammatory that was, all right, okay. He wanted to concentrate in his presidency in. Getting the most nationalist, secularist leaders in the in the area that he could talk to, people like Gamal Abdel Nasser and uh, Sadat in Egypt. Okay, he did not want to deal with the monarchies in Saudi Arabia, and in fact, he was opposed to the monarchy in Saudi Arabia. All right, at that early age. All right. He did not really like the Shah of Iran. In fact, in fact, he commissioned a study, a State Department study, to bring back Mossadegh. Now, to understand what that means, you gotta understand that the CIA overthrew Mossadegh. In fact, that was their first coup under Alan Dulles. All right, and back there in 1953. Because, of course, Mossadegh wanted to do with the natural resources of his country, what people like Lumumba and Sukarno wanted to do with their natural resources, like keep it in our country, and enrich our people, rather than sending it to England or the United States or France, etc. Yeah,
0: right. Mozambique, folks, um, 1953, he nationalized the oil in Iran. And uh, that kind of makes me nervous because Canada right now supplies the most oil to the United States. I'm just jesting. It's not the same <laughs> dynamic at all. But.
1: All right. Okay, and so the Shah understood this, okay, and he understood that the Kennedy brothers were not kidding. So in 1963, again, I'm probably, you guys probably never even heard what this was. He authorized a reform program called the White Revolution, which was a a combination land reform, civil rights program, all right, under under pressure from Kennedy State Department. All right, and so... What happened, though, and why this did not work out, is that Johnson, unlike Kennedy, was very good friends with the Rockefeller family. In fact, he wanted Nelson Rockefeller to run for president okay, in 1968 because he thought Nelson Rockefeller was the only Republican who could beat Bobby Kennedy. All right. And so Johnson, of course, eased up on this. He also, Johnson, completely shifted Kennedy's neutral position towards Israel. All right. And this is ex- exhibited by the the so the six day war and also the Liberty incident. All right. And so then of course, when Nixon gets into office, his foreign policy maestro is Henry Kissinger, who of course owes his career to Rockefeller. Okay, and I'm what I'm saying this because of course, the Rockefellers had an interest in not nationalizing the oil in that area because they had so many interests, they were making so many billions of dollars, you know, from the agreement that they have with the Shah of Iran. All right. Then Ford, of course, Kissinger stays on in his administration, and then Brzezinski is another Rockefeller sycophant, and he advises Carter. In fact, he had Carter in Tehran, six months before the revolution was breaking out. Now, one last point, because people always say, Why why should we care about the Kenny assassination today? Well, I'm gonna explain this very carefully, because it has everything to do with today's world. Jimmy Carter did not want to let the Shah into the United States. He resisted it to the bitter end. Until finally, cornered, all right, with no support. Right before Carter's about to cave, he very memorably says, (laughs) words of the effect, all right, you guys, I just want to know one thing. What are you going to advise me to do when they overrun our embassy and take our employees hostage? Okay. All right. Well, (laughs) that's exactly what happened, which, of course, changed the whole nature of the modern world. I mean, not only did it cause the Iranian Revolution to become radicalized, beyond belief, it began the whole spread of mos- the, the very thing that Kennedy warned about back in 1957 was now going to become real.
0: Yeah, I should set up the dynamic too folks, in 1979 the Shah of Iran, which means king, um, was a dictator. Uh, he did bring in western values, mm, not western values, that's the wrong word to use, but western ideology if you will. Women didn't have to cover. Um, There was no Sharia law the way there is now. And all of a sudden, this Ayatollah Khomeini comes along. Ayatollah Khomeini, by many people, is seen as this uh, messianic type of figure. He's going to straighten out all the tyranny that was taking place under uh, the Shah of Iran, all the American influence. And he promises, yes, we'll have free elections. uh, We'll have Western Uh, values, if you will, where women won't have to cover, no Sharia law, and all of a sudden he gets in power, and within six months, he's firing women judges, he's making women cover, uh, and the rest just follows suit. Um, They replaced one dictator with a thugocracy, as I call it.
1: What happened is that the whole issue of letting the Shah into the United States Radicalized and radicalized. If you remember the marches around the embassy and everything and all that stuff, you know, and then when it happened, when it happened, you know, that's really when the Ayatollah and his forces took the upper hand. And let's put it this way you know, the story about that whole Iranian revolution has never really been told completely. And it's a real shame that yeah. it has not been. Yeah. Because right. there's no doubt today it was a cataclysmic event in contemporary history. So when I say you know people say well why should we worry about what happened to Kennedy? Today? I go well because the whole world is based upon the reversal of his foreign policy in the Middle East except nobody knows what his foreign policy in the Middle East was. All right? that's, that's the big problem. Yeah. You know? So this is one of the things that I've been interested you know in doing all right and, uh, you know uh, in, the, in the last year or so. The deeper cover-up is who was John Kennedy? And today, after doing all this work in this area, I believe that this particular cover-up is even worse. It's even more institutionalized. It's even more ingrained into our media and into our body politic than the other cover-up is. And the reason I think it's pretty obvious is because if the American people knew how much the world changed because of the murder of Kennedy.
0: I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Daily Plaza. First person witness accounts. Order yours right now. NightFrightShow.com.